Welcome back, friends, fellow philosophers, and authors to this wild aisle writing cast. I have with me the Renaissance man himself, the sound engineer, game designer, artist, and author, the one, the only, Matt Dawson. How are you doing, Matt? Woohoo! I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing well as well. We've got a fun conversation today. I've titled it Word Smithing, the Means of Authorial Production. Do not worry. Um, we will not reduce this down to something, anything to do with communism. Though maybe, who knows? We don't until we get into it. Uh, but yeah, we're going to talk about productivity, uh, what it means to be productive, how we can be productive, the obstacles of productivity when it comes to being an author. But before we do, we must sell some things to you. And the thing I'm most excited to pitch to you today is my revamped kick, Kickstarter campaign. That's right. If you're listening to this when it comes out July 27th, tomorrow I'll be launching the campaign that's going to be running for 60 days. Um, I don't have the dates with me, even though I should for this announcement, but I don't. But you'll have plenty of time to check it out. I'm raising funds. This is like a relaunch of my previous campaign. But because I don't know what the word no means. Instead of asking for the paltry sum I was before, I'm asking for a little bit more because uh, I want to redo the cover of my initial novel along with five new covers for five new batches of stories. Plus, I'm going to be publishing a Choose Your Own Adventure Kids book, which requires lots of art that I'll be commissioning a local artist for. Um, and so I need some funding because I am poor. So if you want to help me bring all of those things into being, most of which, actually not most of which, all of which are already written. We're just funding the covers, funding artists, getting money into these poor uh, artistic folks' hands. Check that out. I'll have a link in the description um, to this podcast. Um, and that's my Kickstarter campaign. I'll also send you over to wildislelit.com for all the good stuff there. Uh, you can listen to the other podcast. I won't run through the whole gamut because uh, I, I want to pass things off to Matt. Matt, do you have anywhere you want to send people before we begin so they can check out your stuff? Yep. I am putting together a newsletter for the books I'm uh, soon to publish. Uh, that's join.machinedhearts.com. And uh, I'll uh, pass it on to Marquis, and we can uh, we can uh, get that linked in the bottom. Yeah, we'll definitely get that link. Join.machinehearts.com. Was that right? That's correct. All right, I got it. I can't believe it. I can never. My short-term memory is awful. All right. Uh, speaking of short-term, uh, we're going to get into productivity. I have this broken down, but uh, we can go however we want. Um, where single session productivity, you've got like the length of a project, we've got like your whole career as an author. But before we can even get into any of that, we have to, you know, answer the question when we say productivity as an author, what do we mean exactly? Uh, it means your output. Um, so there, there is an interesting line. There's like the actual creativity of, of a work and how unique you are and things of that nature. That's been kind of the artist zeitgeist for quite the while. But what I mean is putting pen to paper and having a, uh, a final finished work to show to the world. Yeah, that's the difference between essentially quality and quantity, which are 
related, but obviously not the same thing. I noticed you just use the term zeitgeist. Um, I've been doing Duolingo German lessons. Zeitgeist, it's the time ghost, right? The spirit of the times. Um, and you mentioned that quality had been the spirit of the times, the fixation on the masterful production. Um, I would say that would be probably be the, the case for, let's say, particularly in academia, that's the case, no doubt about that. But the fact that you brought up the spirit of the times, does that mean that you think that times are a changing? In some in some ways, I would say so. But really, the focus is if if you want to be able to create something great, I don't think that um, how you make it should be this one masterful stroke as compared to, say, lots of output. So there was an interesting book uh, I read a while ago called Art and Fear. Uh, and in the book, there was this um, comparison. They, they split up visual artists into two groups, drawing groups. Um, and one said, you know, one group was tasked with, you have to draw one perfect picture. Doesn't matter how, how you do it, you have one perfect picture that you, you output. And the other group said, um, you have to output this many drawings like 100 say you have to output 100 drawings and they both had the same amount of time and say it was something relatively reasonable like a day or a week you know somewhere in there um and what they found was that the group that produced more had um a more innate quality to it than the one group that was so focused on making the one perfect picture um and i think that's kind of that that shifted how I, I thought about creativity in general. Because ultimately what we uh, what I was always thinking about when I when I made was like I just gotta put down the right sentence, the perfect sentence. It's gotta be correct on the paper. Um and and recently I had kind of a shift in mentality because I I do want to do I want to be a fiction writer as a part of a, a business model. And that's kind of a dirty word, dirty concept to say. But ultimately, if we look at it from a business perspective, what do you need? You need output. You need to be productive, uh, as I defined uh, previously. You need to be able to uh, give to uh, your customers what they want. So if you're sitting there for 10 years and laboring over each sentence, carefully maybe that's what your customers want but largely if we look at authors like you know george r, r. martin or i believe patrick rutherford also has this issue um, i might get that wrong but ultimately you know you know we've we've had kind of this superstar author producing what is probably the the finality of his of a long series of a beloved series um uh, for most part um and it just doesn't seem to be coming up which i i don't <laughs> i don't know someone who's read you know the the whole series of a song of ice and fire um that's like yeah I I, i'm what I, what I mean is like i i have i don't haven't met anyone who's read it who said yeah um i'm so glad this is taking 10 years like they want it you you know you want to be able to read it and you want to understand like what happens to the characters what happens to the plot right so if we, uh, it, 
it seems kind of uh, polar opposites to set to tie a business objective to art, right? But as a software developer, I've been a professional as a software developer for over 10 years now. Um, I know firsthand that constraint breeds creativity. So if you give yourself a deadline, if you give yourself an objective, you know, I mean, time is always a component. We only have, we only have a finite amount of time in the world, but you know, I, I want to write uh, 50,000 words in a month. That seems like a good objective. That's a, a NaNoWriMo effectively, right? So that's that's a fair objective to, to tackle. Um, so then they, so then you take that that component like of productivity and you condense it down into like a creative measure. Like, okay, I can do this in uh, in this, you know, this amount in this month, let's just say 50,000 words. Um, do my customers want that as well? Um, and that's where you kind of start diving down and being creative. Like, okay, if I can only do 50,000 words, but my customers are expecting double that, I can output, um, you know, six novels a year, right? One novel every other month is six novels a year. Um, will that keep my customers happy? So that's one component. That's not the whole picture because there's more to it, especially, you know, I'm, I'm a, uh, a genre fiction writer. I'm a fantasy author. So there's a little bit more to it than, say, writing nonfiction or um, maybe just uh, like a romance novel, right? So romance, I would say, is, for lack of a better term, a fairly solved um, uh, genre, right? So there, there are tons and tons of books that are written about how to uh, use this specific trope or um, kind of have a beat sheet for when to land, uh, you know, specific points of the, of a plot. It's fairly solved, and there's and that's perfectly fine. I would say fantasy, to some degree, has a little bit more um, leeway. Like there's the three act structure or um hero's journey or uh story circle right there's uh, f kind of a, a fair number of uh off the shelf structures and i i don't really say that with any sort of disdain i mean it's always good to have a structure and there is uh, the shape of a story as well uh to go off of um to quote vonnegut um you know there is structure and there's form in order to bring together this product right so when you have fantasy, you also have kind of the world building aspect, which makes things even more complicated. But ultimately, if you say, you know, I have this time frame to build all of this, uh, and assuming that you're not just a, a fresh, complete 100% tabula rasa writer, um, you know, there's things that one can do to prepare to, to, to have these constraints imposed upon you. Yeah, I don't think really there's anything there I, I disagree with at all. I've heard a similar example. This has probably been done a number of times. You mentioned starting out the the test with drawings. I've heard it with throwing, uh, what's it called, pottery. And you got the exact same results. And I don't doubt that if you did that with, you know, write one perfect short story versus 10 short stories, that you'd end up getting the better result. Um, what's interesting because there's a lot there to to unpack, so forgive me if it takes me a moment. What's interesting is we moved very quickly into a kind of, uh, and I hate to use the word, but a synthesis between quality and quantity that comes with 
would say the idea that, okay, we need to produce if this is to be a career. And as we produce, we actually end up with better quality over time. Um, and what that means is that actually there's another component that I think has not been considered. And that I, really what I think that is, is that is the artist, right? Like we think, okay, we're producing the art, but I think this all the time. You're not, you're not merely producing whatever it is. You're writing a story. You're also practicing writing a story. And that makes you a better writer in a number of ways. Um, and one of the biggest ways to improve quality is just to get more and more and more practice, right? The more pieces that you produce um, or the higher rate that you produce even a single piece, right? If it takes you six years to write a book or six months, you will, let's say, improve more by doing it in six months because then you have five and a half more years to to practice. Whereas by the time you get done with the one book, uh, in my experience anyway, because I did that, uh, using myself as an example, uh, the amount of improvement as an author I got from the from one is like 10 times. It's literally 10 times faster. Um, and we can get into to why that is. But tying it back into a business, I think, relates to tying it back in um, to the artist as well, right? Because when we really think of what a, a business is, uh, you can think of it in the kind of the cold um, calculating economic way, which we tend to speak in it that way because it's easier to understand. But what we re really need to understand is as, as someone who's selling something, you are trading something of value to somebody else who values that thing. So you are the producer of value and how much value you can produce in you know unit time depends on your skill. And then it also depends on how frequently you release the works. So it's really good that you brought up uh, George R. R. Martin, because I was a really, 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 and I'm still a big fan. I, I like his work, but I haven't cared about his series, The Song of Ice and Fire, in a couple years now. Uh, I stopped caring about it when the uh, essentially the TV series started to go downhill around season four. And I became more apathetic, you know, year after year after year. And by the end, like, not only did I not care about that TV series anymore, but now my excitement for the books is gone. And a lot of that is because you can't leave an audience hanging forever. Um, they start to forget about you. And honestly, the question is, like, is this book going to be better because it took several years? Probably not. Right, it's probably not going to be better. the The book is going to be as good as it's going to be if it's finished. And I do think that is, you know, relating that back to the times before we we, we shift subjects. I think that is the spirit of the time. That kind of reminds me of a combination of the time pressures and market forces that, let's say, pushed out the the pulp fiction of the past. Right, because. You had to get the stories out quickly. They had to be, you know, short. Um, they didn't need to be perfect. No one, no one during the pulp era cared if anything was perfect, right? That's not what people were aiming for. I think it was Isaac Asimov who said he just sat down at his typewriter and write and didn't even care if it was good, which is how he was so prolific. Um, versus this, you know, the stardom that you mentioned, right? So where we are 
combining these things by recognizing that actually the way that you get to that stardom is not through doing what they're doing right now, which is actually a kind of vicious luxury, right? They get the look because, you know, if you're already super popular, you know, you don't have to worry about where you're going to get food to eat, right? Uh, I heard right. uh, I heard a guy say this, like, you know, if you're already, it's hard to get out of bed when you're already sleep, uh, sleeping on silk sheets. It's only when you're, when you're, you're hungry, when you, you feel that, that need that drive that push, which I think really is coming out of the indie scene for a lot of people who now are really, you know, they really want to make their lives on their artistic production, whatever that may be. Um, and we're recognizing that actually to get to, let's say, where George is, you write 20, what are they called, the Aces novels. He has like a weird science fiction series that there's like a ton of books that I think he produced at a much higher rate of speed uh, without probably right. worrying anywhere close to the quality before he got to where he is. And then you just look at the um, A Song of Ice and Fire books. They didn't take that long to come out between each other for the first few. It was only after they hit mass popularity did he take the you know the luxury to slow down so yeah well, that, there, I go ahead go ahead that in specific though so th there's a couple of interesting facets um it especially in serialized or semi-serialized um works is i guess really the question the author has to ask himself is do you want to have the series die a death of obscurity where it just gets neglected, it falls by the wayside. You know, maybe the artist has really focused on quality. That is one type of death for that. Or is it kind of, um, you know, death by oversaturation? Um, the artist kind of pumps everything out. Um, you know, there there is definitely a natural lifespan for a project. And it's, I think this is true across any medium. Uh, I've seen it in uh, visual visual work. I've seen it in software, um, even in in novels. I've I've heard um, and read kind of some some works where the the creator themselves are just kind of um, kind of live through it and, and are kind of done with it. But that's really, you know, there's a there is a direct medium where it's you measure exact cut you know measure twice cut once and you have that whole series done um but for long standing you know if, if you're eating from it uh so to speak where you, you know your rent your your utilities you know your, your quality of life comes from a specific series um it starts to trend in that either direction where it's like you know either it runs long because you've you neglect it and you kind of ride on that coattail, as you said, it's hard to get out of bed with uh, silk sheets. Or, you know, you just keep pumping it out um, in, a, in a very me uh, mechanical fashion. So it's, it's, that is also a challenge too. And it's, it's definitely something um, I've experienced in other mediums. And I don't have a good answer for that yet. Um, I think keeping things keeping things focused is probably the best way to to um to go through a specific project right so when i speak when i speak about a project like the current um series i'm working on is planned for 10 books 
we're gonna you know get in um execute the whole plot and then uh get out um do i the world itself has plenty of other stories to tell uh and there's different genres and it spans across um and that was kind of by design early on as well so um as far you know that also is something to take into account when considering productivity over the lifespan of of being a commercial artist i would reckon Yeah, so that kind of gets into the the career perspective, and that's the broadest. So I think that's probably the next best place to to venture uh, is whether you think along the lines of you know, am I going to focus in on a particular series? Am I going to diversify? Um, am I thinking in big terms or small terms? Right. So uh, myself as an example, and I think we're probably um, a good contrast. We lean a little bit differently on each side of this fence. Um, I actually kind of envy, uh, not kind of, I definitely envy your rate of production. Uh, I, I've seen you, you know, be able to to really get through your word counts day after day after day. Um, and I, I've, I've attempted and failed to make it. And we'll probably find out why by the end of the podcast, to be honest. Maybe I'll, hey, I'll learn something and maybe I'll be able to produce more. Uh, but... There is that question of how much are you going to focus? Because you can die on either end, right? And I think part of that question comes down to thinking big or thinking small. What do I mean by that? Well, if you think big, you're thinking like the the series, right? You're thinking, okay, I'm going to take on this project. It's going to be this many books. Um, I've kind of got the plot set out. I could expand, but... Uh, but the goal is to get through those things that I need to get through. Um, and necessarily, that is a more uh, quantity-focused mindset. Not to say that it is anti-quality, but the focus is produce the material. Because I'm thinking, you know, the thought is across the material. There's the small mindset. This is, uh, I tend to get caught in this, where uh, I don't really tend to think past the story I'm working on, or sometimes even the chapter that I'm working on. Granted, my chapters are like novellas. So, you know, take that, you know, with a grain of salt. But um, where I get really caught in that, and I tend to deviate quite a bit, like instead of writing a sequel right away, I decided, yeah, I'll, I'll write some short stories. And then I wrote five, and then that, that five turned to six, and that six turned to seven. And then I'm like, I'll write a stories for like New Year's. And it's like, okay, this is going to take way too long. I'm not going to finish it in time. Okay, they make that eight. Hey, why don't we just bundle that with the other? So now I've got eight short stories that were originally supposed to be five, and it's been a year. And now I'm only on the second chapter to a sequel to a book that's been out for a while. Um, now, those things come with benefits and losses but in terms of productivity um what's, where's the, where's the question here right it's it can't just be a, a boiling down to what's preferable i guess it's a cost benefit analysis right so um you know what has been your experience uh on the the productivity the quantity focused end of approaching let's say a, a series of, of fiction Sure. Um, I, ironically, I think we have the same mentality. So I focus on the story. Uh, there's kind of like three philosophies as we were, as you were speaking that kind of come to me. Um, so way back when, when I was younger, I was terribly out of shape. 
and I decided that I wanted to start running. Uh, and without any sort of education, looking into it or anything, I bought a pair of sneakers and I started running and it went horrible. I ran about a hundred feet, ran out of breath and was sweating, um, terribly. It was awful. Um, so I sat down, um, you know, almost having emptied the, <laughs> the contents of my gut from pushing myself so hard. And I was like, there's gotta be a better way to do this. And so there was, there was uh, a number of programs I found that were very containerized, uh, and very focused. It, you know, it had you measure how much can you do and then start from there. Um, and specifically for marathon, that's like couch to 5k. That was, that was in specific. It's, it's a little bit more paywalled now, but back in the day, it was just an open source free program for anybody to, to go off and do. And basically all it was was okay, run for this amount of time, walk for this amount of time, run, walk, run, walk. And then eventually, if you follow the program and the number of days, you went from barely being able to get off the couch and, you know, rapidly moving to running a 5k consistently and that's what i did um and so i started trying to do that with writing a while ago and i got pretty quick but the problem was quality like um i don't know if it was because i was i mean it definitely was because i was more of a novice writer um but there were a few times when i had gotten up to you know, two or three K an hour. Um, and as I've gotten more uh, seasoned as a writer, that's that's less possible. Um, and it's something I'm still introspecting on. But really what I'm the second philosophy I'm coming into between us is like I do focus on that one story. Um, and in fact, I I focus even smaller, like one chapter at a time and you were speaking to the length of your uh chapters and i would say mine are quite long as well i would say at least uh a fairly long short story per chapter um you know on fifty-five thousand words i have 20 chapters so they're they're relatively long each um i would say the quote came from uh jordan peterson but if you want to find God, look lower. I would say focus even, even smaller. Um, you know, outline. I have a very, very, I want to say shallow outline. I, I have. Let me count them right now. I'm just looking at my my planner. One, two, three, four, five sentences. That's my whole outline for the book I'm writing right now. And the one prior was six sentences. It, it you know. How long does it take you to write six sentences? Can you outline an entire plot of a, of a book in that long? And I would say you can. You know, like write one one sentence taglines for the plot of a of a book. Can you know? Can you do that? If you could do that, then there's your out, there's like the start of your outline. Now, if you want to interweave, you know, the construction of a novel is really up to the artist. Again, that that comes down to story structure which is which is not really into doesn't really get into that the productivity component of it uh it's just a feature of that novel but you know look lower um separate concerns so um one thing i caught that uh, caught myself doing that really helped me get faster was turning off the internal editor 
that is like the one productivity killer um, that I had to really burn out of myself. Um, and there's a few tools. There's a few few techniques I've used in the past to kind of hone my skill in that. Um, it, much like the my uh, my time learning how to to run a marathon. Um, there's a website called 750words.com, I believe is is the uh, name of the website. Um, and basically, it's a free white uh, free writing tool. Um, it's a subscription based, but I reckon if if you're budget conscious, um, you can probably do it with uh, you know notepad and a timer and and just being um, kind of honest with yourself. But the the tool, so you know, as a tool, 750 words kind of does everything in one um, one package. And really what it does is your goal is to write 750 words as fast as possible. Um, and then once you hit your target, your time is recorded and the contents are wiped clean. Like you, you can't read them again. The goal isn't to write anything, you know, enlightening. Nobody's going to see it. Uh, the goal is for you to take words out of your head and put it on the page. And that has been... Um, a fantastic tool and a, and a way to improve um, kind of my skill in in first draft production. And really, I think first first draft production is the hardest part. Um, if I'm looking, it, it, my first novel is kind of rough. But if I'm just looking at the time, it took me 15 days to write uh, 57,000 words, uh, roughly. And then it took me a little bit over 12 days to edit it through. So, I mean, it's almost one-to-one, -one, but most of the fixing I I had to do on, on what I would like to call legacy words. Um, but to go back to the free writing aspect of it, kind of take the couch to 5k kind of aspect to it start learning how to free write and turn off the editor and then put the editor back on when you go back to look at the first draft um and as i'm uh looking at this as my in my first my first novel um i noticed that it definitely started flowing a lot better um epictetus comes to mind if you want to be a writer then write uh there's a lot of uh, how do you say it? there's a lot of contention as far as like do you need to to read as a writer and i think that's been put to bed it's you definitely need to read to become a writer so i'm not going to kind of touch on that part but you really have to write to become a writer you can't sit around and think about perfect sentence um and in that aspect if you can if you can accept that like you know i have i the the author the artist whatever have to output in order to become the thing I want to become, um, and in this case, a writer, then it only makes sense that um, it's going to naturally flow out. And that's what I noticed. Like the first, you know, I had a kind of a base of words to start from. Uh, it boiled down to about 2,000 words, let's just say. Um, and those were really rough. I had to really edit those down. But once I, once I kind of let the clutch out and really stepped on the gas, um it became easier to edit as well and maybe it's because you know i had some mental shortcuts going on maybe something in in my brain realigned and i saw what i was writing or maybe i'm just a terrible editor i don't know <laughs> but um 
Yeah, I would say start outputting as much as you can. Start separating concerns, uh, and your brain will start kind of shortcutting so that when you come back to it, if nothing else, you'll see the patterns and be able to fix the issues that you'll, you're seeing in the writing itself. Yeah, we come back to this idea of uh, training the self as to produce more, right? It's not to focus on, it's not, a, it's not just write more, it's find out how to get better at it. And it's probably separate than working on your original piece. Um, I've had practice with free writing and it really does work. Um, I got out of the habit, but I probably should get back in because uh, the project, the series really that I'm writing now came from a free writing project actually where uh, it was rather simple. I would set a timer for 15 minutes. I would have pen and paper because if you want to free write, um, I actually think pen and paper is better because there's something more permanent and you're if you needed some help turning off the editor brain that helps a lot because you don't want it, it feels bad to go back and scratch something so you just tend to just like i'll put up with it and keep going uh, but yeah that produced a whole series and definitely after 15 minutes of free writing something that i didn't think would be of any consequence so i didn't really care um it, i was a lot more loose a lot more fluid um of a writer now the editor brain thing is something i likewise suffered from at the beginning i i hesitate to say i i definitely have a habit a bad habit of editing while i write but there is another issue that i in particular come up against and i don't know how common this is so um this is kind of moving from the wide scale down to the single writing session right um and so my experience with writing is uh, I sit down, I'm very disciplined about getting in the chair and making sure I make time to write consistently every day. I try to do it at the same time every day if I can. And this kind of has to do with inspiration, right? Because um, we're both going to agree that you can't wait to be inspired. That doesn't work. That never works. What I like to say is that the muses are not just like uh like blushing maidens they're also like trad wives so like they're really fickle but they still expect you to show up to work every day <laughs> like it's uh <laughs> it, it's, it's a bit of both yeah that's how it is it's uh they're they're both of the feminine archetypes there and so what i found is i sit down but uh one thing i run into and i, I actually find this more in common with poets um, than I do most prose writers, and maybe I'm a poet, even though I hate poets, um, which annoys me. But um, there is a high degree of unconsciousness that I definitely the free writing helped me to achieve when I write that uh, is actually very, very uh, difficult, and I think to some extent physiologically taxing to maintain. So on days where I'm really writing intensive, I will eat a lot more. Like I feel like I'm starving the whole day. Like when I was in grad school, even um, we would. I was a low residency program, so most of the time I wasn't on campus. But when we would go, it'd be like two weeks of stuff going on constantly. Uh, you'd be writing and doing workshops all day for like ten, twelve days, however long it was. And I'm again, same experience: brain exhaustion and hunger. And I notice. Uh, 
part of the limit on my productivity is a is a burnout. Like when I mean a burnout, I mean like like the point where if you push, what happens is your brain starts producing the emotion anger, which shuts down the rest of your creativity, and you are uh, you're basically screwed at that point. At least I'm basically screwed, um, and then I have to just go do something else. Um, and sometimes that happens when I get through fifteen hundred to two thousand words on a good day, um, and sometimes that happens after like four hundred words when I've pressed myself for two hours to get those four four hundred words. It's really inconsistent. I think, like you mentioned, the free writing would help. I'm going to get back into that because there's no reason not to. If I could lubricate the process, I should. Um, but do you have any experience with that or that, you know, uh, either two, two things. One is the kind of de- dependence on a kind of inspiration. You don't wait around for it. You show up and you try regardless, but um, a kind of inspiration that just generates the 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 content and then also the burnout and when that comes what's your experience with either of those sure uh so for the first part this is kind of why i liked the the using uh the website itself like the free writing uh website i had uh mentioned because i i kind of noticed that i started turning it into uh, a meditative uh, uh, effort. Um, the when I first went through it, my sticking point was I made a, I, I made a lot of typos, right? And then I'd be like, I'll just fix it. It's fine. I'll keep going. And it was really slow. Like it, it you know, seven hundred fifty words. I think I did it in like I don't know. Let's just say twenty minutes. It, it relatively slow for something that should just be kind of flowing out of you, like a like a like a telephone conversation, right? Um, and then one day I kind of had this inspiration to close my eyes. I was like, nobody's going to see this. Nobody cares about the content of it. I just have to finish the words. And so I started having this conversation in my head about, you know, whatever was coming to my mind on that day. You know, I kind of have a a monologue about what was going on, what was going through my head. Uh, and when I opened it, it was a disaster. But I noticed it got done really, really fast. Like I could get it done in my heyday at five to seven minutes. Um, it was legible. Like I, I could go back and and re- you know before I had done and and effectively delete the content, you go back and look, um, and like I understood it. But it definitely looks like you know baby's first typing experience. Um, but it kind of drew out this meditative quality to it where I wasn't really focused on the writing. I was focused on what I was thinking. And that was really uh, kind of one step to getting faster is that um, you kind of have to step outside your own like physical presence. And it, it's re- that's really weird and, and meta because I was just talking about business and being very concrete. Um, but I... This was a sticking point when I tried to take my free writing to, um, to actually just doing fiction that would be worth even trying to read. Um, I actually made it too formal. So I was like, all right, I'm going to sit down every day, the exact same time, not before, not after. I'm going to listen to this exact same thing 
I'm going to have this amount of coffee with this. You know what I mean? Like I measured everything out and I was failing terribly. It was awful. Like I, I'd get like a hundred words in and I'd be like, I, I got nothing. I don't know what to do. Um, which didn't make sense because I'd go back to the free writing and I'd be like, this is amazing. I'm, I'm piling in through all these words. And it was kind of one day I put this connect together where it was like, I really just have to let go of trying to write in the physical sense and just be present in what I want to write. Uh, this kind of you know meditative mindfulness about how to write. Uh, and that really unlocked things. Um, has became really really metaphysical all of a sudden but really that's that's that was one step to to getting faster was um you know just being able to to write from head to paper with nothing in between um and that takes that took a lot of practice and the second part on burnout um, and this is something I experienced more as a junior software developer. So when I first started in the industry, um, I wanted to do to be the absolute best. I was going to be number one and be on top. And I worked incredibly long hours, um, and it was really bad for my health. And I and things went downhill real fast, uh, and I crashed and burned um, for a number of years. It, it was kind of rough, but um like terrible terrible burnout like i worked through that exact thing you're talking about where it like your brain is like trying to basically hold you down in the seat and be like stop stop what you're doing whatever you're doing don't do that anymore go do anything else go run around go eat a candy bar go watch a movie anything but what you're doing right now um and that kind of comes down to i think i think uh hormones so if you've ever worked out um, as far as, say, muscle, like strength training, um, when you when your muscles get tired, you produce uh, lactic acid. So that's basically the, the signal in your blood that's like, if you keep going, you're going to destroy your muscles. Don't do that. Stop. Stop that. And I think there's a same, similar mechanism for thought or for thinking, for using your, you know, pre, uh, prefrontal cortex, where it's like you've expended your ability to convert whatever energy in your body into this, uh, I don't know, abstract thought, right? So I don't know what the mechanism is. I'm not a bioengineer, so I'm not going to, <laughs> to even attempt to it, but there is a similar mechanism where your body puts on the brakes and it, there is a component to it where you have to push through it a little bit. You can't just completely like, uh, you know, drive your face through a wall because you'll definitely eventually um you know tax yourself to the point where your health deteriorates and everything falls apart so there is that there's that strength training component where you're you have to build yourself up to a resistance to it but on the other end it's also probably hormonal so my solution to solving uh, to my, my solution to kind of getting rid of that let's just say the roadblock there's a, that initial you know hand to fire pullback uh reaction is to fast so um, when I start feeling that tension in your head, you know, my head starts feeling t tight. That's kind of how I, I start experiencing burnout is like feel tightness. Um, I definitely get hungrier. Um, you know, maybe a little bit more agitated, a little bit more antsy. Like I have to go do something. 
um, more than say my daily exercises or something like that. And that's when I start fasting. Um, you know, just water and coffee for, uh, I, I kind of graduate into it. So I'll do like an, uh, an 18 hour and then a 20 hour and then a 24 hour over the course of a week. Um, and if it's really bad, then I'll go to a 48 hour. Um, those moments are rare nowadays because I'm, I'm very closely monitor uh, and I'm very sensitive to that now. But uh, I found fasting and just kind of abstaining from uh, the silk sheets, so to speak, does help. Hmm. I may try fasting. I've never been able to fast successfully. Um, unfortunately, I might be because like I, I like this like skinny, scrawny dude. So I'm like, right, especially now because I've been injured. So I've lost weight. I'm like 135 and I'm like 5'8". So um, I, I don't know that I have any excess resources to eat other than like deteriorate my muscle, the little muscle mass that I have. Um, but I, I may give that a try in the in the future and see see if my uh, brain wants to cooperate with me. Uh, but yeah, definitely keeping away from the from the comforts. Uh, I think that's doom. Um, now, if you're listening, well, no, no, no. If you're listening, to this this might very well be a really important lesson to make. I I assume a lot of people um, have cultivated a sense of discipline, uh, and like we were discussing before we started the podcast, it's actually not the case. Uh, there are a lot of people who, when they get agitated, they're they're solution is to go to the silk right um my, my solution has been just okay if i can't do this do something else productive so you feel like you did you know you, you actually use the time productively and then come back when you can um though that's not optimal either that kind of uh there's a there's a point in here we've got we've talked a lot about word count uh, we haven't had a chance to talk a lot about how much time, which I think is kind of related to uh, both the burnout we're experiencing, and we could talk about it in relationship to like the free uh, free writing. Because I know like the reason I got out of free writing, it's stupid, the reason, but it's because like I thought, well, I'd rather just spend the time working on my actual project, right? Which is like the devil sitting on your shoulder whispering like, no, don't do the free writing, just sit in agony in front of your desk instead and waste that waste 30 minutes waste 45 minutes just trying to get words out don't do the 15 minutes writing um but but how much time really should we be spending um per writing session right like how what's what's realistic is it is it realistic to sit there for three four five hour sessions or is like one two to three hours at the longest more reasonable as far as uh productive writing or are we just talking about warm-up um i think for warm-up we've got it down like really you only need 15 20 minutes like you mentioned before it doesn't have to be very long um but for for yeah for real like once you're you're on your project you're working on it um you know how many how many hours per session is a reasonable goal in your estimation It really depends on what your goals are. So personally, I I can definitely write for eight hours. I've, you know, I've stretched myself a number of times when I've had the ability to section out eight hours of work. 
Um, and I, I didn't feel anything negative. Right. So that going back to burnout, that's, that's the, the bar that gets set. Like I can prescribe any number of things, but if after hour two, you're, you know, you, the author out there is just completely toast. That's, you know, that is the, the dividing line. Um, I think that again, this kind of goes back to strength training. Um, I think the more that you do it and the, the less hard on yourself you are, but more determined, the better. So if, you know, today you can only write an hour and then you're toast. Okay, cool. Tomorrow, try and write an extra five minutes. And if that doesn't work, write two and a half extra minutes. There is a line by which you can push that out. And over the course of a year, it will eventually become far greater. So even if it's like an extra 30 seconds a day, okay, cool. What's an extra 30 seconds over the course of a year? That's that's a lot of extra minutes that we, that can be added to a writing time. Um, so there's like the, the, the judgment aspect of it, of oneself where like, yeah, you got to have some grit. So like, clearly there's, there's a difference between like, oh, I don't want to do it. And that's when you got to push and like, I can't do this. I'm done. And being honest with yourself is key key component. Like, I sat down and I was like, eh, I don't really want to do it. And like, even the best the best comparison I have is again going to the gym. The days that you most don't want to do it is the days it's the best for you to go. And it, and that's just pushing. You know, like push yourself uh, out of the comfort zone. Um, get rid of the devil on your shoulder. Um, just like push yourself to do and i think that comp that part of it is is where you'll see the most results now how much can you do i think it i i think that you know at least four hours is really what the baseline is i've heard a lot of um you know psychologists and and, and um other you know more academic creators speak to like a four-hour rule maybe that's the baseline um, but I'm not convinced that is a hard and fast rule, especially, especially if you want to do it as a job. And that's not to say that, you know, you have to work eight hours a day, every day, um, in order to make it because I don't, you know, I don't know that yet, but like, if you compare two writers, if one person stares at their computer for seven hours and writes for one, and the other person stares at the computer for one hour and writes for seven and that's their pattern over the course of a year, who's going to have um, more output? It's clearly going to be the person who puts in seven hours worth of writing. Um, now, if you're fast or slow, it's hard to say there. Like the pulp writers of, of your, and just like you said, and uh, you mentioned Isaac Asimov as well, um, you know, put by the wayside quality for output. If you can have that kind of that output and have that kind of drive and be able to manage yourself in that way um, and have that frame of mind, I think that is a better step forward than, um, I guess, kind of pussyfooting around the the whole idea of, of creating, right? 
be a little bit more determined, be a little bit more diligent, uh, diligent, and um, and really try and push yourself because I guess really what I'm trying to get at is like we we as a society treat art as kind of like this delicate flower, and we have to give it space and and step away from it and let it bloom, and then you'll have this beautiful work of art. Um, when really you know showing up and putting hands on your keyboard and writing what's in your head um you know for better or for worse whatever comes out is the most effective tactic in order to become successful no one has become successful by staring at their screen for eight hours and writing nothing unless they've already been unless they're already successful yeah like we said then they have the luxury uh, I guess it turns out I'm a bit of a softy when it comes to this. Um, you know, I the what I always tell people is like any amount that you manage is always, uh, let's say, a success. Uh, maybe that's because I'm I'm so slow myself. It's something I have to tell myself uh, to not get discouraged. But then again, it's this is another bit of that discussion we had before. I'm making that presumption that everyone is in fact getting in the chair every day. I take that for granted that, um, you know, I managed to get here and I will, even if I would be just staring at a screen and for actually that when I was writing my very first novel, part of the reason it took six years is I would uh, for hours and hours. Like I, I remember one day, I think I spent, it was like five hours on a sentence. It was the stupidest thing in the world. Um, yeah, right. But I could do that. Uh, and I could back then write, um, write for like an eight hour window, uh, particularly when I was in my early twenties. Um, uh, I remember there was some, uh, I was in college undergrad, some girl showed interest in me and my writing and I sent her a couple chapters. She read it and seemed excited about it. And then I was like more motivated than I'd ever been before. You know how that is. Um, and so, <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. It's exactly like you would think. And I was sitting there, I was writing, I think I was writing probably about eight hours a day at that point. And it was like the, the easiest time to write the most, the longest I had, like the power of youth combined with the inspiration of, uh, a pretty girl actually paying attention to me. Uh, that never worked out. And when I went, this, this is the thing though, when I went back to everything that I had written back then. Now, granted, I was a new writer. Um, it all needed to be rewritten. And then the stuff that needed to be written needed to be re revised. And after that time, um, I found myself, and you mentioned this before, both unable to write for that long and also unable to produce anywhere near in the quantity. I will say, though, that the, now this might just be a product of spending more time writing and therefore I've improved. So this might just be out in the wash. I will say though, that I find um, the quality of my drafts to be a lot higher. Like it's, it's not very often that things need to be rewritten for me at all. Like, you know, you fiddle around with words sometimes and occasionally like dialogue needs to shift around. Granted, dialogue goes faster than narrative exposition tends to. Um, but I do find for myself the there is a difference when maybe it's me, right? If I'm going to look at the at the material 
and I'm just going to scrap all of it. And I've done that. And I and I and if I if I am unsatisfied with the way that this might be because I'm I'm particularly finicky and picky with style and prose. Like if it does not if if it does not have that uh, rhythmic element and the qualities of sound playing off each other, I won't use it. I'll just get rid of it. Um, part of the reason for that, or that makes my ghostwriting stuff, because I do ghostwriting as well, that goes way faster. I can ghostwrite material twice as fast because I care about that quality about half as much. <laughs> and that's, right. that's probably, yeah, that's probably putting gunk in the gears. Uh, but I do, I, I do find that the closer that your writing gets to uh, poetry or something like that, or like if you think of old plays written in verse, and I'm not going that far, anywhere close to that. But the closer you do get to that, I do find that that um, no amount of racing productivity helps because it will all it will all go in the trash. And it's like you know, you know. So if you want to write like I don't know if you've read The Last Unicorn. Um, but I, I'd, I'd seen the, the animated film, which is very good. And then I read the novel. And every page, I was just blown away and like bemoaning my own lack of ability um, because there was something on each page that was of the qualities that I was just speaking. Uh, and why am, I, why am I ranting on and on and on about this? Um, I, I think part of me wants to to know if there is really uh, a place in the coming age for um, that type of work, or if I might be holding on to maybe something that I had picked up in academia or something, where like the particular quality of prose matters, and I'm I'm gunking myself down, covering myself in academic filth, if you will, grinding the the gears to a halt. Well, I don't think so. I think like there is this romantic notion when someone says like I'm going to become a writer, like especially if if you're American, like writing the next great American novel, right? You're going to you're going to drop a great Gatsby and the whole world's going to go whoa and everyone's going to be amazed and you're going to be sitting at cocktail parties and recanting your uh, you know, epic writing adventure. Like there is that that romantic uh, aspect to writing like that that mystique that i think draws people to wanting to at least give it a shot um i i think that it, we're kind of speaking to different phases of being an author like right now i'm in kind of you know the pulp phase which is for better or for worse kind of a, a pupil phase um and there's nothing wrong with being a, a pulp writer forever. I think some of some of the best stories that are still around and they're they're um, you know um, public attribute, uh, you know, they're great. Like if you if you don't care about prose and you just want to talk about story, fantastic. There's nothing wrong with being a pulp writer for your entire career. Um, but if you want to get to the point where you can produce that uh you know next great american uh, american novel and i think there's going to be plenty of space for it uh in the coming years um in some way you have to step 
through these phases and there i'm sure there's some immensely talented you know literature fanatic that can just you know hop skip and jump up to being able to produce individual novels with immense artistry um that's that's not my wheelhouse i'm not, I'm not that skilled so i i can't speak to that person and i don't know how many people there are that can just jump right into firing off you know a masterpiece but ultimately like if if we if we're in agreement that you know more writing uh only draws out more of the skill um then being prolific in the style in the ways that you know pulp authors of the past have is kind of a requirement to get to that next step um and considering how many you know next great american novels there have been in the past um it you know not everybody transitions to that point and you know as an author and an artist how satisfied would you be if your career only spanned you know being a pulp or just a step above it where you you write a, a uh an incredible you know serious right you know a song of ice of fire is not complete but that is the closest thing we have today to an to an adult yeah. fantasy series um you know if if that's where your career landed would you be happy or do you have to write something that lands you know lands in the realm of great expectations yeah. or something like that yeah i certainly draw the wouldn't want to draw the line across um like what would commonly be called literary fiction <laughs> Uh, I actually don't think there's anything wrong with um, what has been relegated as genre. And actually, there's nothing that stops anyone from from writing with great prose. Like I just mentioned, The Last Unicorn. That's a book meant for, like, you know, uh, 10-year-old, like, you know, children. It, that's the target demographic. Um, yet it's still, uh, let's say, there's an immense amount of effort put in there. That, what I end up thinking... Uh, Oh, by the way, I, I should say I do agree with you. I think the first step is to produce. Uh, I I would never advise anyone to do what I did, which is the stupidest move ever, which is exactly what you just said. Try to write the great novel. It's the first book you've ever written, kid. And then you know you, what you end up doing is suffering for half a decade to realize that you had foundational problems with your book. And of course you did because you didn't know what you were doing, Marquise. You're an idiot. Um now, that being said, I have actually taken a look at Salt, Sand, and Blood, and while um, as a story it has problems, and I wouldn't want to continue that story unless I went back and really revisit it from the ground up, I'm actually still impressed with some of my writing in that. Perhaps not the dialogue as much, but there are, you know, if I flip and, and start reading a particular chapter, I'm like, ooh, okay, that was good. That was slick. I liked how I put that together. Now, I say that. And I also realize from a business perspective, no one cares about that. Um, and so I really do agree with you that if I, and I give the same, people the same advice, right? I don't know why I'm trying to, to, to talk about this, maybe in my own defense or something. Um, but I do tell people, it's just better that you write. Just write more, you will get better. Don't worry about things being perfect. And I tell people that because I've... Um, Part of me doesn't want them to suffer the same long, grueling fate that I had to suffer trying 
you know, learning my lesson. But also I'm worried that they'll get discouraged and give up. And you you made a comparison before that, you know, if we all just, if you get on the highway and you stick on there and you don't stop and you keep going, you can make it. And you probably will. Um, and that's something that I've encountered. I know there's actually, you know, if, if you don't know this, tons of people write. Way more people have written, way more people have even completed books than you would think. But the thing is, they write one and it's usually not that great, or maybe they do two and they're all right, and then they stop because they don't get traction. And I think the real, the real key here is, again, production, right? Is, you know, whether you're writing quickly or slowly, do not stop. If you can figure a way to produce more in less time, that's good. Um, if you want to be like a pretentious artist like Marquise and have days where you sluggard by and slog through and hardly get anything done, but you still sit down and do it, that's okay too, I guess. Maybe you probably shouldn't be that guy. He has some bad habits. Um, but I think that that endurance, the the discipline to not surrender and to keep going, um, I think that is that's probably the, the the key and then you worry about being good after you've put in uh put in the work um one thing about the pulps though before i uh, i throw another question out there uh, it's something that I've, I've really noticed uh and it does speak to the quantity versus quality bit and maybe there's something enlightening here so like if i go and i grab my giant book for uh Robert E. Howard's Conan stories. This is what I like to do it with because I have one on my shelf. And I open a modern novel, a particular modern fantasy novel, and I read a random passage. And then I open Conan and I read a random passage. Um, now, occasionally there are some wonky, repetitive sentences in there because Howard was writing on a typewriter and had tight deadlines. But I do notice that his old pulp work puts um, a lot of modern, rapidly produced, particularly like the, you see the long-running commercial series where they're coming out with a book every either six months or a year or something like that. It just puts it to shame. Like it looks like a child wrote one and then the other was actually written by uh, an artist, particularly like I opened up the um, Solomon Kane stories, which I haven't really read, had a chance to read through. But just skimming through, uh, the the prose is amazing, and even like people give uh, people like Lovecraft shit. Um, to be frank, I think actually people are bad at reading, and Lovecraft was was good at writing. And it took me a long yeah, time to Lovecraft be able. Lovecraft was yeah. fantastic at writing. I think. Yeah, it it because I it, I struggled reading his his stories at first because I was a bad reader, but I chose again not to give up, and eventually. I found the proper rhythm and I could hold the sentences in my head, which is kind of difficult because sometimes they're like a paragraph long. But once you get past that hurdle, you start to realize, oh, I sucked and he was good. And why am I bringing up those kind of writers? I think it's because I, I really want there to be that point at which the quantity and the quality come together. 
so that we get the works out there that people do produce that they, like you mentioned with uh, Epictetus, like if you want to get good at writing, you write or Nietzsche said the same thing. Like if you want to be a master, write like, um, you know, read great works and write like a two page short story every day. And in two, uh, in two years, you'll be a master. It's basically what he said. It's like basically practice and, and you'll get good. Um, Do you, do you think that that is uh, that that is? I guess I'm wondering if that's like a, a pipe dream. If we can we can bring together both the the rapid production that we really need to to fuel a market and to practice the work without losing some of the the quality. Because I saw when I see the pulp guys, like they they seem to some some of them anyway. The famous, really famous ones, seem to have achieved it, and they didn't fall into say the trap of like, uh, like I'm not a big fan of the Dresden Files by Jim Butcher. Uh, I find the writing to be really, really lazy, to be frank. Um, and and I see a lot of high production turn into that. Um, and I, I guess I'm wondering, like, can we can we achieve that commercial success without sacrificing? the artistic quality. So I think like I, I had uh, another question and, and this kind of blends into that. So when you were speaking about kind of production um, and you're talking about discouragement and that, that came up a number of times, uh, kind of discouraging the, the writer as far as like, you know, as long as you produce things of that nature. Um, my question is, like as a thought experiment, and I think this might also answer this as well. If the future you suddenly appeared for like 30 seconds and said, you're going to be a successful writer in the future, and then he disappeared forever. Do you think that the mental hurdles that you face as far as worrying about quality, and that and that's not to say that it's you know unfounded i'm just saying like do you feel the worries and maybe the contention that you feel over the quality would be eased enough to improve your ability to output in some way i, I think okay i'm going to eliminate my brain trying to think about how like this time travel works and whether or not because like, my immediate thought is it, so I'll say yes in a sense, like it would take away self doubt, and so um, like other neuron. This also some of my problems might be because I'm like I don't know, like eighty something percentile in trait neuroticism. If you're familiar with the Big Five, so um, that might be part of my problem too. But uh, it would definitely assuage part of that, like because I I've, I've got some like I mentioned some days where I produce more in a relatively short time. Uh, before I just start to burn out, like so I'll have days where I can do sixteen hundred words in two hours, uh, which is pretty good. I've, I've even done that much in one hour before when I'm ghostwriting. So clearly, there's some emotional weight. So if I had myself from the future come and say, "Hey, man, you are going to be a success," um, when I have, let's say, days of 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 self doubt and uh, the the long struggle with the despair and the the great down going um, that would definitely help 
a lot. That would definitely um, take away some stress, which would open up the creative faculties. Because any uh, any stress, I know, like physiologically shuts down the creative capacity. Like, I don't mean stress. I mean, like, there are certain emotions that do it. And if you're despairing or angry, that just doesn't help. You have to be relaxed, open, and then press. So I guess I would answer yes. Um, though I don't know if that would change. I don't think that would spur me to change the the process. Um, and the right. reason why. But if you were yeah. sitting down, if you were just sitting down, like you had that, like that moment, maybe it was a message in a bottle, whatever the, the mechanism was, you received a note, you're confident, it came from the future, you're going to be great. From there on out, if you sat down at, at your desk and went to write, like it would, it would kind of open the pathways as far as like, like I'm just going to write today, like clearly in the future, whatever I, I'm going to do today is going to mean something in the future. Like that would that be kind of the the overall sentiment you you'd carry with you every day you sat down to write uh yeah i mean yes it would so i mean clearly we're not going to be visited from uh, we're not going to be visiting ourselves in the future because otherwise we would have already you know the further back you go the more impact you have so the way like the way I've always situated my life is that I act out the things I want to see in the future. So, you know, I want to be a writer. So what do I do? I sit down and write. But what does a writer do? They put words on the page. As far as quality is concerned, like I, there's a limit every day that I'm going to be able to output qual like some amount of quality. If you look at a line on a graph, it, you know, there's probably a diminishing return where it curves up, gent you know, it goes up sharply and then curves off and then flat lines and goes straight for however long, however much effort, you know, along the X axis uh, you put into, say, a sentence or a paragraph or a, a scene, you know, whatever way that you'd like to measure uh, a segment of quality. So, of course, like, when I sit down, like I care about how much quality I'm putting out. Like I don't put out gibberish and be like, I did it today. I put out my words because clearly that's just going to bite me in the future. So there is, there's a trade-off um, to broaden the scope. We can only, we can only service the readers that exist out there. Um, Am I going? Am I a writer going to be able to find a readership that has the, let's just say, intellectual nuance of someone in the 1850s, 1860s? Um, maybe. How big is that? You know, population. Probably fairly limited. I, you know, I know a number of people who are excited about, you know, steampunk and Victorian era things. And I'm sure they read very old books to to keep in their, um, you know, their way of life. But will that satisfy my ability to make a living as a writer? Probably not. So will we ever come back to quality? And that really dives into what does our society look like in 100 years? Um, and, you know, a lot of projections are bleak, but I don't think that like we're we're not on some railroad 
right? We're not on some hard set path where we're forced to to go where the graphs tell us to go. Um, you know, we hear a lot that um, culture is what is it? Culture is downstream. Is it culture is upstream from politics and things of that nature, right? Yeah, I so, think it's usually flipped the other way, but the politics is downstream from culture. Andrew Breitbart, I think. Right, right. I, I messed that up, but effectively, like the culture by which we we produce is what affects us as a society is is really what that that quote that I bungled terribly um, is trying to say. Um, so really. It, it kind of flows back into my philosophy that a successful author is just a writer that has survived a long, a long enough timeline. So can we, can we become, can we write quality such that everything else around us is of equal quality? Um, I think we're moving into an era where quality standards are going down, right? So there's going to be a ton of AI generated gobbledygook uh should we concern ourselves with that i say no there are going to be people who are going to try and make a quick buck that's always going to be true those things never survive the sand of time once it's you know once once the sand of time uh collides with these products they're usually swept away um you know how many how many bad pulps have fallen through the cracks it's unknowable. There's always another quality pulp that surfaces on, say, Project Gutenberg. Um, how many people care to to carry over a, a pulp that's like, oh, what is this? I don't, I don't know. Maybe there is a, a conservation effort that I'm not aware of. But um, we like if if we look back, like we're looking back at um, Conan the Barbarian. Like Conan Bar the Barbarian was. Uh, a genre, was a genre maker. It created the sword and sorcery fantasy genre. So it's really hard to say, like, are we going to ma be making new genres? Is everybody going to be making new genres in the future? Which it might be true, but I, I think that we're looking backwards with um, rose-tinted glasses when we set the bar like that. Um, can we, in you know, can we? delight readers with really interest with great prose and build quality products yes i think that as authors we can do that and we should strive to do that that's just you know having pride in in what you what you make to the best of your abilities um so then that comes down to you're speaking to the balance of quality versus quantity um i think that there will always be a hunger for good literature uh you know a good book is kind of hard to keep down uh so to speak so you know how long tail do you want to i'm going to speak in business terms because really this is really you know the business proposition for it do you need to eat off your work today then your quality of your work is going to suffer can you survive in aiming at a target in 10 years time if you can do that, if you can survive for 10 years and be a very productive writer and care about the quality, like there's a lot of there's a lot of variables in this in this segment. But if you can do all of this and say in 10 years, I'm I'm going to have all of this breadth of work 
I care about the quality of it. I'm going to write the best that I absolutely can. I'm going to do my research. I'm going to focus. Like, I'm going to continue to evolve as a writer. Then, yes, you'll probably see, you know, will you be a, a genre-defining writer um, like Howard was? I, I can't say. That's That's impossible for anybody to predict. But will you sit up on high? I... I want to say if you're doing your due diligence and you're focused and you care about what you're making and, you know, you're both prolific and always keeping an eye on the output and the product that you're creating, um, you know, of course, balancing those two uh, uh, aspects because you have to put in more time to make things higher quality. Uh, it would be it would be fairly challenging for me to say, no, you'll never you'll never have a quality product aiming you know, that far down the road and always keeping your eye on the ball. Uh, it, it doesn't seem to make sense unless, you know, there's a limiting factor in one's ability to write in some way, shape. Yeah. You know, yeah, there's a thought that occurred to me as you were going through it that the aim and what you're willing to sacrifice, I think, matters. So, yeah, absolutely. And I know uh, a couple successful self-published authors who they do make their their income off of their work and um for them to do that they had to be incredibly prolific uh i will say that the what i'm gonna for right now call the artistic quality of their work did suffer and i realized as you were talking um when we think about the genre changers like you mentioned like uh, howard or lovecraft both spawn their own essentially subgenres a fiction as we understand it now. If you actually look at their work, I actually don't know how prolific they were because the whole Conan, all of the Conan stuff fits in one relatively large book. But at this stage, I've already, if I, if I just look at quantity, I've already passed up everything like in terms of quantity that both would say Lovecraft or uh, not Howard in total, because he wrote other works, so he's got more. But in two years, I'll have passed up Howard even. Throughout the, now, granted, he died when he was like 30, so that's kind of cheating. But um, but you can kind of see that the people who did change genres, they if you look at their lives, they were poor, basically. Um, you know, Robert lived, uh, Robert E. Howard lived with his mom. Lovecraft lived in his whole family home. Um, both were relatively impoverished. Uh, and I think that that was probably common. And so what we're really looking at is like, if your goal is to be a working author, I think you really have to focus on productivity uh, and you can't worry about trying to, you know, be a starving artist basically, because that's the opposite of your goal. Cause then you're starving. Right. Um, but if, and the uh, counterpoint to that and the counterpoint, you were speaking to both of them kind of being starving artists, which is true. But the other end of the coin is Walter B. Gibson, who wrote the uh, the Shadow series um, in the 30s. Uh, he was not a starving artist. He was an incredibly prolific writer. Um, I don't think any of his work... I mean, he he has great prose. It's readable. It's not, you know, it, it's serviceable. I don't think that it would win awards even standing up to today. Uh, it's definitely, you know, leaps and bounds over a lot of the modern pulp that we see, of course. But um, 
you know, he in the 30s in the midst of the Great Depression bought himself a mansion living, you know, off of this the Shadow series. He wrote, uh, you know, um, what was it? Something I, I did the calculations a while ago. It was like almost uh, uh, over a million words a year for, you know, a number of years. Uh, and even afterwards, a lot of in his in his uh, kind of sunset um, era of life, he still cranked out, you know, almost a million words a year. Um, and he just loved writing. No, I, I guess really that's 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 kind of where I balance. You know, today we we have to self-publish. That's just how pulp exists uh, in its state. Uh, which is not a bad thing, of course. Like I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying I, I enjoy the concept of self-publishing, but um, overall, he treated it as a as a business, even if he wasn't you know, like he was working for a publisher. He didn't own the rights to the shadow. Like he doesn't own the shadow series. Like he, the only thing that is really attached to him is was it was even just his pen name. And even his pen name was used by other writers. Um, as it was picked up um, for other The Shadow series. Um, but he was prolific and he was diligent. Um, so I guess really, we didn't, we didn't really define our terms. What does quality mean? Like, I think The Shadow today, if, you, if it was re-released to the public, would would be a resounding success. It's a really interesting detective story. Uh, it has kind of the supernatural component to it. It it hits every box still today. It's it's a. Re I think it would be a resounding success. Um, you know, I don't know how many people are familiar with the Shadow in general, but like let's just assume it was blindly re-released. I think it would do fantastic in the in the pulp. Uh, you know, sectors of of. Um, you know, just marketing and everything else. Um, you know, is that quality? What does what does quality actually mean? Does it have to have a, a, you know, a poetic prose to it if it's serviceable and if it's, you know, let's just say it's not repetitious, it's not careless, and and as far as like you know, repeating words or or wonky sentence structure, like let's just assume it's serviceable, it's readable, it doesn't get in the way. Is that quality or is there something is there a different series of qualifiers that we would attach to being the gold standard what does that what does that mean yeah i would definitely say there's different ones like the composition of the prose is only one element it's the one that i like uh, quite a lot but that if there are other elements there that can be you know even subpar like if you think of dune like to be frank, Dune's writing is kind of terrible uh, in terms of the construction of the prose, but the uh, setting is extremely interesting, and the plot is also interesting. Even if the dialogue is really wonky at times, and so Dune gets by with wonky dialogue and bad prose because the other elements, other you know, make up for it. And um, I think we could use. We mentioned Jordan Peterson before. He has a measure of quality he typically uses for like scientific papers, and it's like okay, the number of citations is indicative to the significance of the work. And he often attributes like okay, well, like the Bible is like that because of how many other things and people and institutions that it has a fundamental. Influence 
influence and effect on. And I think we could do the same thing with fiction. I don't know why we couldn't. Um, and you mentioned, because this ties back to the genre changers, right? So we've got the idea of commercial quality or commercial success and that it will sell a lot. It will entertain a lot of people. They will enjoy it. Um, and then we have this, uh, I think, perhaps idea of quality as significance, where how big of a cultural wave is this going to make? How much of a permanent difference is this going to generate? Um, and I think that is probably where the line kind of differs, where uh, it's actually by definition, very difficult to have as much like a sustaining effect on a culture once you enter into the battlefield of quantity because there are so many things coming. It's, it's kind of the problem of our day, really, right? Like we have a flood of content coming in all the time. And so you could be super impactful, but forgotten very fast. Because there's just so much, so much, so much. It's it's rare that something comes up that sticks, um, and oftentimes, as an author, as a reader as well, I'm still going back to the old classics for deep inspiration. Um, Same. Yeah, and I think the reason for that is that those are, if you really look, it's like those are not even the most prolific writers there do not even come close to a modern commercial fiction writer. Um, but they, they wrote something with an extreme degree of significance, right? Like it, I think that that's really what we're, we are, that's what we're looking at. And it's a question of, do you want like, and, and I think it's valid on both sides, right? Because like by its very nature, hardly any works are can ever be significant because it's it's the fact that they stand out amongst the crowd the fact that they're exceptional that makes them well exceptional because they excel above the rest it's a pareto distribution right um but if you know if if an author came to me or an aspiring author came to me and he said like i want to make a living off my writing i really love writing I would definitely encourage that person to write. And I would definitely encourage that person to just focus on keep writing, keep producing material, get stuff out there so that you have enough that you can get an audience, you can sell, you can make money, you can provide them with the entertainment or the whatever the particular kind of value that you're providing them. You're happy. You live a meaningful life. They get more meaning in their lives. That's, you know, I think really that is the most that someone can hope for. In their in whatever career, right? Like this isn't just talking about writing. It'd be anything, and so I think that's perfectly laudable, um, and I think that's where a lot of people are going to end up. Uh, though I do, I do think that you're going to find a few of those people who are the like high openness, low agreeableness, high neurotic people who end up. You know, um, most of them are going to end up being scorned artists who get like destroyed by the world because only the few can survive. Um, <laughs> and if you're willing, yeah, and if you're willing to be that person where you're you're willing to say, okay, probably the most I can hope for is that I die in obscurity, and then after I'm dead, my work gains some type of 
deep and impactful notoriety. Because we forget, but that's what happened to those great pulp writers. Well, that's we can flip it on its head, though. So, like, I would say, you know, like, dying in obscurity is somewhat of a negative connotation. But what if you what if we flipped it and we we we're kind of uh, towing around like this next generation, this new era of writing? Would the would you as an artist, and I'm speaking to both you and the audience, would you feel that you have a fulfilling? you've had a fulfilling and productive um, career if you built the first layer of a deep foundation. So your eventual, your body of work, your eventual, uh, you know, everything that you've made is eventually going to get buried by other great artists that come after you that maybe you'll never meet. Um, it depends on what we mean by buried. Like if I got, because um, I'm, I'm thinking in the realms of, probably not. Because I think by buried, you mean like I would write something that then would lay the foundation for other people. But if my leave it laying the foundation, uh, I, I guess there's a question there, right? So I actually don't think you can lay the foundations without being great. I don't think that really happens. Um, I, I think that anything that great, it takes a while, but it ends up coming back and becoming a cult classic. And people will go and rediscover it because it will stick around. It will still be available. Um, you know, I, I saw this when I first watched the uh, film Dark Crystal, which is slow as all hell. But you know, lo and behold, you watch it, and then all of a sudden, Meyer lurks come on screen, and you realize, you motherfuckers, you just literally took this monster and put it in Fallout, Bethesda. And, like, it's the same. It's, like, exactly the same. Um, but sure enough, Dark Crystal was still available. I had known about it and heard of it, even though I hadn't seen it, right? Um, it had enough cultural weight that it was going to it, it it it's going to resurface. Same thing with the last unicorn, right? You hear that name. People who read will know, like maybe they haven't read the book, that they'll know, like, yeah, that book, I've heard about it and I've heard it's good. Um, and if they keep pressing, eventually they, you know, they pick it up because it sustains. But if I go to like a bookstore and I or even if I I go to like there there's like a little shelf at my local gym where people can drop off books. There's tons and tons of old thrillers and romance novels and westerns by really commercially hyper successful authors. But I've never like I I couldn't tell you anything about them. Um, I know that there are people who don't and won't read difficult wrote or I should say don't and can't read difficult books or old books who really love those but I've never heard anybody say like they were inspired by them I don't see as far as I'm aware now maybe I'm just totally unaware but I don't see people um 
citing them in the way that Jordan Peterson said. And so I don't know that you can really be buried uh, in that sense. I think I think if you if you can lay the foundations, then eventually the civilization that builds on top of you will start doing archaeological digs because there's going to be a bunch of artifacts underneath their feet. Um, now, if I could know I'm going to die in obscurity and then eventually my work will have an influence, if that's what you meant, um, yeah, I'd be perfectly happy. Like uh, all, of, all of my heroes, my authorial heroes, that's what happened to them. So I can't, you know, if I can achieve what they achieved, right, that, that should be good enough for me at least. Um, but, but yeah, I, if it's, if it's, yeah, I just don't, I can't see being well, it's, both. Go ahead. Go ahead. The limiting factor in the, let's just say reference, uh, theory, as far as fiction, it's, it's true. Like if, if we go through this figurative archeological dig, there's going to be the one amazing piece of work that is the let's just say the godfather of these descendant works right it's the reference center but the way that the way that that specific artifact proliferates is different than a scientific paper so a scientific paper isn't really meant to uh to be consumed right it's it's meant to convey knowledge in so far as it can be consumed but if someone duplicates it it's it's just plagiarism right it, it doesn't convey anything new it's just a carbon copy there's no added value but in so far as like a piece of fiction there is the ideas that that godfather work um let's just say established but the descendant work is relaying it by codifying its tropes so it has that it has that linking factor, but it's also reiterating the point. And maybe it's transforming it a little bit. Maybe it's not transforming it enough to be meaningful and be a, let's just say, a godfather work uh, to keep the, the name going. But um, there's nothing that's, uh, there's nothing, like, in comparing the two, there's nothing that says, like, the next great work, sure, was inspired by that godfather work, but was traced through all of these descendants. Uh, as you as you spoke, like these these very pulpy, very mass market uh, works, like there's nothing that says like sure. Eventually, that second generation great artist didn't start out with those other pulps, and and it's in that notion like is where I'm coming coming from as far as foundational. You know, if if you the artist never created that Godfather work, but were a uh, had a successful career in creating a lot of these node works, uh, effectively creating a, a breadcrumb trail for the next great artist. Is that a satisfying career? Um, for me, no. Uh, and the reason why is because I think I'd agree with you about the, the proliferation of a particular kind of fiction, but I'm thinking of Tolstoy now. And there's a question about what you're doing with your work, right? Um, and there is, in a sense, work that is primarily made to, let's say, um, entertain or engage or 
Um, however, it, work meant to be consumed, like you mentioned. But with Tolstoy, when he was writing his fiction, that wasn't the point. Like he actually cared. He cared about touching upon something that was fundamentally true um, in a particularly novel. I mean, not even really not. Yeah, no, it is novel, a novel way, right? Like, and I've heard again, taking this from Jordan, when you're producing art, you have a question with which you don't have an answer to, and you're encountering a problem that you and perhaps others are actually wrestling with. And through the, through the fiction, the avatars of fiction, however they might manifest, you uh, try your best to come to a real genuine answer to that problem. And because the problem is real and pertinent now, it's actually um, it's not it's not a derivation of tropes, right? What you're, instead, what you've done is we've transcended the contingent notion of tropes because, like you mentioned, the codification of tropes, and they do get codified, but that actually also means they're not real, right? Um, it means that there's no essence to a trope. A trope is contingent upon its time and place what is a trope wasn't a trope and what is a trope in one place isn't a trope in another place or even to another person because if they don't recognize it as being established it suddenly isn't right so a trope is both a trope and not a trope at the same time depending on the person or place meaning that it 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 exists purely within the subjectivity and and actually nowhere in the uh let's say fundamental substratum uh but i think it's different when we start talking about the the archetypes and why do i think that's different because by their very nature the archetypes are our categorization of let's say human universals because uh, we can't go outside the human because we're humans and so we're limited limited to that but given that we're human and we're wrestling with a problem if we touch down all the way to the to the human universal that that problem is entangled with, then the the characters and the plot become a kind of, like I mentioned before, an avatar, an experiment in one's imagination to really wrestle with that. And I think that's two different types of fiction, fundamentally. And I think they serve different purposes. Uh, I, I, I won't compare them and say, uh, I, I rather I what I'm trying to say is I don't think we should compare them and say that one is better than the other, but I, I do think they're different. And um in terms of the line of productivity that we've talked about before, it does very much seem that the more staying power and the more significant that a story has, the uh, it tends to cross time and cross culture. Um I don't mean to drag on too long. But it was in a literary textbook in the back of the book where the students never are meant to read, which is the worst place to put it. Um, there was a particular um, teacher who did like a little guest entry into the book, and he talked about his time teaching various uh, plays across uh, different countries. And I think, I can't remember where he was. It was some Middle Eastern place. They were all Muslim. And he, you know, Read, or had them read this play about a, a guy who I think his wife died and he was, uh, or his wife was having an affair or something. There was a problem with his wife and he was real upset about it and, and there was this tragedy 
or no, no, it's that his wife couldn't have children. That's what it was. And the Muslims there, you know, they just thought, well, he could just get a second wife. And and that ruined like the whole play. And then he read them Shakespeare. And they understood Shakespeare with no issue. It didn't matter which play it was. And I think the reason why is that this particular random playwright was talking about a parochial issue that's contingent upon its time and place and a particular set of tropes that's not relevant across human, like it's not relevant across the universe of humans. Where Shakespeare wrote something that at its fun, at its core is, and they're doing two different things. Uh, and I think it depends. We have to ask, or every author should ask himself, what are you doing? Like if you're trying to, if you just want to make a living writing because you love writing, don't be a starving artist. I think that's probably the wrong, the wrong notion. You need to produce. You need to be. You need to be at it. You need to do what you can to not worry about trying to be. What's the right word? Like I don't know, like answering the next great question because like almost no one's going to do that, and most of the people who try are going to fail, right? Um, and then if you want to do that, I, to those people, I would say, you know, it, it's a bit like going to war and the chance of you dying being very high. Like you have to, you have to understand that it's probably not me, right? Like to me, me to speak personally, it's probably not me who's going to make the difference. Um, though I am cursed with that disposition in some sense. All right, I've rambled on for forever. I apologize about that, Matt. No, I think that that does like that does wrap around kind of our definition of of quality. So really it's not it's not really how do I'm trying to compose the words here. It's not really the fact that there is some distinct um storytelling uh quality to it or it's not really the say composition or the the way the you know sentences are aligned or how they're composed uh that's kind of repetitious but but it's really does like what makes a great story and is high quality is does it answer a societal problem and maybe maybe that's the contention with modern pulp at least is that we as a society for a, a while have, have either swept under the rug or haven't really even had that many uh, deep existential issues to even attempt to answer. And because maybe that's what that's what pulp really is is in some way like the the author themselves trying to wrest uh, an answer out of themselves, right? So even like even in the shadow. So I'll go back to Walter Walter B. Gibson. He was an author in probably you know one of the worst economic times in the country uh, and still somehow he was successful i would say a lot of the 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 a lot of the shadow works are are deeply human right even though he is this kind of supernatural uh, uh person right you know he's he's kind of on the level of like a, a captain america or a a batman somewhere in between there right um but in each of them, you know, there there were deep societal issues, and on some level, he at least tried to answer them or tried to provide a, a 
uh, solution, you know, how deft uh, he was at doing that, you know, I would, I would say it was, if nothing else, entertaining. But maybe it's in the attempt at answering a societal problem that even a pulp author can be both successful to the point that, you know, he doesn't starve. And there's the chance of a breakout where you do, you, stu- you stumble, you know, like much like a mad scientist in, a, in his lab, uh, you know, mixing chemicals and throwing together all of this, you know, semi-alchemical uh, uh, product. A burst, you know, a, a big explosion comes forth, and you've you've uh, discovered a solution. Uh, maybe in that same fashion, that's that's the evolution that brings you from pulp to next next great American novel or series, depending on how you want to uh, look at it. Is that the society has to have a problem, and I think that's why we we as you know, like kind of our our collective let's just say of authors you know we do see issues within our own society and we want to try and bring answers to the forefront maybe that's that's both the dividing line and the answer to rising above say being buffeted by the sands of time like that specific proposition of of how to how to be successful is that you're always working towards an answer um and you know there's also the entertainment factor there's an escape escapism component to it there's a lot of different facets that are almost impossible to um you know iterate over however however many different properties of a good book there are but that might be the dividing line as to why you know i think you and i both kind of have the same sense like if i go back to a pulp during the 30s i resonate in the same way that you know shakespeare kind of resonates across cultures you know we're resonating with it across times you know we have a lot of different challenges today than the american the average american did you know almost 100 years ago but it's still it's still a story that tries to solve a problem and that is also a good business model you know you don't go into business to make money you go into business to solve a problem and if you go in with that mindset you have a much better chance of of creating a successful business um otherwise so maybe there's a connection there and that is the key to both being prolific and potentially becoming something more you, you know you're the uh you know the aforementioned author doesn't have to be the uh penal colony uh the penal battalion soviet rushing into machine gun fire on both sides uh, you know behind and uh, in front of them but it's more of a uh i would say a little bit more of a, a peaceful business proposition you know to to be able to eat from your work so to speak you both have to solve solve a problem which is good business sense and you do that through the nature of storytelling which is the authorial component of it yeah that that kind of ties it together pretty well uh and to be honest is probably where close to where i'm at um where i can't say that i quite make it but i'm almost making it purely on writing and 
uh, editing-based endeavors. And really, it was a lot of it was believing in myself, uh, sticking to what I thought was important, and then not giving up. And, uh, you know, it's maybe I could have gotten here. Oh, not maybe. Could have gotten here where I am a lot faster um, if I had let go more in the beginning. Again, not spend six years writing one book, spend six years writing 12 books. That would have been way better, way better idea. Uh, but we are we are running down our clock. Um, this has been actually a really interesting discussion. I didn't expect it to take the, the turn that it did, but I'm actually very happy that I did, um, or that, that it did, not I. I didn't make the turn. It did all by itself, just like writing when you just sit down and open yourself to the creative flow, the muses, when uh, you become a conduit to God through your free writing. Don't forget to free write, uh, friends and fellow philosophers. Uh, but yeah, I think we'll, we can tie a, a bow on it there. Um, and we can end out by shilling our stuff. So uh, before you guys go, remember, remember, I have a Kickstarter campaign that's going to be launching tomorrow. Be on the lookout for that. Um, it's going to be up on my website, along with all the social media. I'll post about it, wildoutlet.com. Um, I know times are tough. Uh, perhaps you too are a starving artist, or if you're, you're perhaps you're even a prolific, but yet starting artist. Um, if you can't give anything that's cool, uh, I totally understand. But please, if you guys would do me this favor, if you are listening to the podcast, spread it far and wide, this Kickstarter campaign, show it uh, to as many people as possible. Uh, because look, the money's not even going to me. Uh, all of the money's going to other artists so that I can be a prolific author, just like we described, and get a series of work out there instead of just having my uh, one mainstay novel. Uh, so Matt, can you remind us uh, where to check out your work? Sure. I'll be uh, posting up chapters as uh, as we get closer to release. Uh, just join the newsletter, join.machinedhearts.com. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening on this conversation of wordsmithing the means of authorial production. I had with me Matt Dawson, and we will see you next time. See you later.